Today on Diving Deeper, we will explore invasive species. Joining us by phone today is Amy Uren, a research ecologist with NOAA's National Centers for Coastal Ocean Science. Hi, Amy. Thanks for joining us today. Hi. Great to be here. Amy, let's just start off with the basics here first. What is an invasive species? That's a really good question, Kate. There are some divergent perceptions on exactly what constitutes an invasive species, but most federal organizations follow a definition that goes something like this. It would be any living organism, it can be plant or animal, that is not native to the particular area under consideration. So the species has been introduced or is non-native, and the species has a tendency to spread very rapidly and can cause economic or environmental harm or harm to humans or animals or other plants. So to be specifically considered invasive, the negative impacts that are caused by the particular non-native species have to outweigh any benefits that that species may be providing in an area. Amy, can you give us a few examples of an invasive species that our listeners may be familiar with? Absolutely. So probably one that most listeners would be most familiar with would be the invasive lionfish. So this is a fish species that is native to the Indo-Pacific region that has now invaded the east coast of the United States and parts of the Caribbean. Another species that folks might be familiar with, particularly in the northern part of the United States, is the zebra mussel, which is common to Europe in the Black and Caspian Seas and has invaded the Great Lakes areas in the United States. And Amy, I'm sure this varies, you know, kind of for each instance, but can you share with us some ways that an invasive species might be introduced into an area? Sure. So one of the major pathways for the introduction of invasive species comes through shipping, particularly ships that are crossing oceans. In their home port, ships take on water. They take on ballast water, and that is to offset the way that the the cargo of the ship is distributed throughout the ship, and it's just sort of like a weight balancing game. But then when the ship crosses and gets to its destination port, that ballast water is typically just released from the ship into the waterway that it has transited to. So that is one of the major uh, pathways of the introduction of invasive species. So another way species could be introduced is accidental or intentional releases from the aquaculture industry. So many aquaculture species, particularly many shellfish species, are actually not native. So for example, here in the U.S., there are a lot of aquaculture facilities for Pacific oysters. So if those oysters um, somehow spawn and the spawn escapes from a contained area, those species could be introduced um, accidentally. Another common way people might hear about is the aquarium trade or people have particular fish species in their aquarium that they don't want anymore or becoming a nuisance in the aquarium and they just release them into a local waterway. Species can get here also by hitchhiking on marine debris, particularly for some marine plants, just floating fragments can invade another area. And an interesting mechanism, and this is a mechanism how an invasive seagrass got to the west coast of the United States, and that was it was used in packing 
oysters from Asia that were sent over to the West Coast for aquaculture there, and the seagrass seedlings and fragments in that packing material actually got released when the oysters were unpacked, and that seagrass was able to invade parts of the West Coast of the United States. Okay, I'm probably most familiar with the, you know, the the ballast water that ships are taking on, like you just explained to us there, but I wasn't aware of so many of these other different instances. What kinds of impacts does an invasive species have on the existing plants and animals that are already there and already living in that area, living in that habitat? Right, so many different impacts, but I, I think that first it's important to point out why some of these invasive species are so successful at invading. So oftentimes these species are taking advantage of some kind of disruption or some kind of disturbance that has happened in a local ecosystem. So on land there might have been a fire. If you think of coastal environments, there might have been a hurricane or coastal development, and somehow that ecosystem becomes disrupted. And oftentimes it's easier for invasive species to survive or take advantage of those types of disturbances than it is for the native species. And there are several characteristics of invasive species that lead to this ability to take advantage of disturbances. And so they typically can re reproduce very rapidly, they grow very fast, they have high dispersal capabilities, which means that they can just move pretty easily from one place to another, so they're very mobile. They are often generalists, and what that means is they can use a wide variety of different resources in an area. So um, people tend to think of generalists in terms of diet. So typically they can eat a variety of other different species and not very, they don't have a specific diet, so they can take advantage of that. Oftentimes these species can alter their growth form or alter the way they look to suit their new conditions. And they are also often able to tolerate a wide range of environmental conditions. And because they're introduced in an area, often they don't have natural predators in that area. So that's kind of a long-winded explanation, but th there's some characteristics of why these types of species do very well when they invade an area. So when you want to talk about then what are the impacts of the invasion, to go back to the lionfish, because folks are probably familiar with that, they tend to crowd out native species and to exclude native species from the same types of prey items. So lionfish, and I can speak directly from um, the lionfish that have invaded here in North Carolina, but they tend to consume the same types of prey fish as grouper and snapper, which are very important here commercially and recreationally. So that's a big problem if lionfish are consuming the majority of the prey items available to other native species. I mentioned zebra mussels before in the Great Lakes. Interesting about zebra mussels is, like, if you think of oyster reefs along the, the coast here um, in North Carolina, zebra mussels can also form reefs on the bottom of rivers and lakes, and this can actually result in changes in water flow and altered habitat structure for native species. So that's an interesting way that, that folks might not think about. There's also a invasive green algae. If you're a marine botanist, everybody knows about Calerpa taxifolia, or the killer green algae, that invaded the Mediterranean Sea. And what was interesting about that particular algae is that where it's native, it actually occurs in small patches and clumps. 
But when it invades an area, it tends to overgrow everything, and it forms really large meadows and was actually beginning to choke out the native seagrass species in the Mediterranean. And that particular algae was also toxic to some herbivores in the area, and those herbivores obviously are at the low end of the food chain. They're serving as prey items for fish higher up in the food chain. And if those herbivores can't exist where that green algae is, then that creates a problem for, like I said, fish that are higher up in the food chain. So there are a lot of things to, to consider about the impacts of the species. And as I mentioned at the beginning, whether or not they are really detrimental. Are there economic impacts that we can see from invasive species? So for these communities that just are living and working around these areas, are they economically impacted by invasives? Oh, absolutely. And I, I can't actually give you any dollar figures, but I can explain generally what, what can happen in some of these areas. So I talked at length about this killer green algae in the Mediterranean Sea. So fishermen were beginning to complain that as they're dragging their nets to catch fish, the, the nets were getting clogged with this algae, getting caught on the algae. And so if your gear breaks or you lose it, obviously you have to spend money to replace your gear, and that, that can come at a significant cost to individual fishermen. We, so we talked about the zebra mussel in the Great Lakes. With the zebra mussel, fouling was a big issue. So the mussels started growing on water intake pipes and things of that nature that are associated with power plants and water purification facilities. They would start to grow on the hulls or the bottoms of ships and, and foul the ships that way, and the ships have to be clean, so that costs money. Oh, we talked about the green crab preying on native shellfish, so that reduces the native shellfish population, and that re reduces the catch um, in those particular fisheries, so that can have an economic cost. And then we mentioned the lionfish, how they tend to eat the same types of fish species that that other fish eat, and those other fish are commercially and recreationally important, so that's reducing uh, the numbers of prey that, that, that those species can utilize. And we talked a little bit about seagrass. One thing we didn't mention is that there is the possibility that a non-native seagrass species could come in and um, fauna could utilize that particular seagrass differently than the native. So if the non-native seagrass comes in and maybe it supports fewer juvenile fish species, well, that's a problem because seagrasses tend to be areas where juvenile fish hang out before they migrate off to a rocky ledge or a coral reef. And so if for some reason these juvenile fish aren't utilizing this non-native seagrass species, that could be a problem later on in their in their life stages. Amy, is, is it possible to remove an invasive species once it's been introduced? That is a really good question. For marine habitats, once a non-native species comes in and establishes, it can be extremely costly and extraordinarily difficult to control or, or eliminate them, if not nearly impossible. And really, early detection and rapid response is key. And controlling these invasives really, I think, needs to focus on intercepting them before they become established and removing the pathways of how they are getting to a location. So, for example, 
we mentioned shipping as a major global pathway for invasive species, and there, can, there are ongoing efforts on how to improve the management of ballast water in these trans, transatlantic um, shipping pathways. Another thing that we mentioned was species escaping from the aquaculture industry. So I know currently folks are working on improving federal oversight and having stricter control measures on the industry to try to limit the accidental escape of those species. What is NOAA's role in respect to invasive species? So NOAA actually is engaged in a couple of intergovernmental organizations that are tasked with dealing with invasive species, and one is the Aquatic Nuisance Species Task Force, (laughs) and NOAA is also involved with the National Invasive Species Council. Part of our involvement would include sharing results of research that was specifically directed towards um, invasive species. Part of that involvement would also include perhaps helping to better define or clarify what an invasive species is and also developing developing guidelines for early detection and rapid rapid response protocols. Folks may have also heard of a program called Muscle Watch. This is a national program that NOAA is involved with that actually can involve citizen science, but what happens is samples are taken from sediment and tissue samples are actually taken from shellfish, bivalves and mollusks, and those samples are analyzed for contaminants. And the focus initially of this program was in the Great Lakes. And so by default, um, people were collecting the zebra mussels that we talked about. So it did give us some good data on the distribution abundance of that type of invasive species because folks were already out there collecting samples for this Muscle Watch program. And the program has been extended. It's, it's on both coasts of the United States now. It's not limited to the Great Lakes anymore. And then in terms of invasive species research, I can't speak for all of NOAA, but in my particular office, so I'm in Beaufort, North Carolina, at the Center for Coastal Fisheries and Habitat Research, and staff in my office were really instrumental in tracking the initial spread of the lionfish invasion when it began on the east coast of the United States. And researchers here at my lab continued to investigate many aspects of the biology and the ecology of this species, as well as develop tools for early detection and rapid response. Do you have any final closing words to leave our listeners with today? Uh, Sure. So in this podcast, we have primarily focused on marine invasive species and some rather large-scale processes or drivers that lead to invasions and how these species get here. But it's also important to point out, since this is Invasive Species Week, um, there are obviously numerous invasive species on land and in freshwater systems. And so no matter where you live, um, as an individual, you can take action against invasive species first by learning what invasive species are in your area um, and perhaps get involved with projects that aim to try to eliminate the species or eradicate species from an area. A lot of times 
national parks, state parks, county parks will look for volunteers to participate in an eradication project. And oftentimes, for obvious reasons, this will focus around plant species because they're not particularly mobile <laughs> and can easily be, you know, pulled out from the roots and discarded. Um, and as I mentioned, early detection and rapid response is really important for managing invasives. So it would give folks a chance to maybe be involved in controlling an invasive species, perhaps in their area, the first occurrence of the species has been has been found, and it might give them an opportunity to participate in these early stages of an invasion and actually help to, to help to uh, control the species. Additionally, a lot of people are avid boaters. It's really important if you if you take your boat to many different waterways and water bodies, so perhaps you like to fish and you're going around from lake to lake, it's really important to clean, drain, and dry your boat after each use, particularly when you're going to go between different bodies of water. Perhaps one that was, would be really important for people is folks who like to maintain aquaria. We talked about the aquarium trade earlier, but it's really important if you decide, I don't I don't like this particular fish in my aquarium, or he's making a mess, or he's bullying the other fish in the tank. It'd be really important to contact the retailer or the person that you bought the fish from, because oftentimes those companies or those people will offer a buyback program. It's really important just to not release that fish or any animal into the wild. Um, you could possibly even trade your fish with someone, you could perhaps donate the fish or the animal to an aquarium or a zoo. I mean, there are many alternatives. And a couple other things, people who are avid hikers or campers or just like to be outdoors and, again, are traveling outside their region, perhaps to another state, another country, really important to clean dirt from your shoes um, after you're finished hiking and you're going to go back home. Another thing that campers might not think about is especially if you're trying to save money, you bring your firewood with you when you go camping. It's really important if you're traveling any great distance out of your, your home region that you actually utilize or buy firewood from the area that you're going to be camping in. Then, of course, if you're going to garden or, or landscape around your home, using native plants is key. And then just taking the things that we've talked about today and what you've learned today in this podcast and encouraging others and educate others about invasive species. Thanks, Amy, for joining us today on Diving Deeper to explore invasive species and really provide us with a lot of great tips and things that we can all do ourselves in our everyday lives as we look to, you know, help hopefully help combat this problem of invasive species. That's all for today's show. For more information, check out our show notes on oceanservice.noaa.gov slash podcasts.html. And remember, you can follow the National Ocean Service on social media. We're at NOAA Ocean on Twitter and Pinterest. Or check out U.S. Ocean Gov on Facebook, Flickr, and YouTube. Be sure to tune in next month.